Hello and welcome to the Mythical Storytelling Podcast. I'm your host and storyteller, Shinjan. I've always been fascinated by the myths and the stories behind those myths in cultures throughout the world. So if you, like me, are interested in exploring these stories behind the myths, then this is the right podcast for you. So without further ado, let's start with today's story. Today's story is called Theseus and the Minotaur, as retold by Anne Terry White. Brought to you by Holiday Whispers, your bespoke and personal holiday plan. Visit holidaywhispers.co.uk today for all the help you need and want to plan your next holiday. And the best part is that it's completely free. So get onto that website now. Also, if you're an aspiring podcaster like me and don't know where to start, check out Burstproud.com. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. And if you sign up for a paid plan through the link in the description, you will receive a $20 Amazon gift voucher. How cool is that? Right, let's get on with the story. In the palace of old King Pythias of Trozen, a grandson was growing up, brave, strong and handsome. And people said of him, What wonder that Theseus is so fair and noble? Is not the great god of Poseidon his father? The young Theseus was pleased enough with being a god's son, the more especially as his cousin Hercules was one. For Theseus idealized the hero whose praises sounded in every court. Often the boy said to himself, I will be like Hercules and slay wild beasts and giants and evil men. So it was a shock to him to learn that he was no demigod but the son of a mortal, King Aegeus of Athens. The secret was revealed to him in a curious way. For several years past on his birthday, his mother, the princess Aethra, had taken him to a great black stone standing by the sea. My son, she had always said. See if you can push this stone aside, try as he would, he had never been able to do it. But on his 18th birthday, he had scarcely exerted his strength when the mighty rock yielded, disclosing a hollow beneath, and in the hollow lay a gold-hilted sword and a pair of embroidered sandals. This sword and these sandals were your father's, Theseus's mother said. Take them up, for now they are yours. Then she told him about her secret marriage to King Aegeus and how on parting from her he had said, When my son, if you bear a son, is strong enough to move the stone, give him my sword and my sandals and let him come to Athens and make himself known to me. Theseus at once put on the sandals and strapped the great coal-hilted sword by his side. He was all on fire to go to Athens. I will provide you with a vessel and oarsman, his grandfather King Pythias said for the roads are beset with robbers. Indeed, indeed, grandfather, I will go by land, Theseus protested. For how can I come to my father with his sword unstained? Greece rings with the fame of Hercules, my cousin, and shall I avoid robbers rather than slay them? Theseus pleaded so hard that in the end King Pythias, great as were his fears, gave in and said, Do according to your spirit. So Theseus set out on foot and alone. Now as the young traveller strode lightly along, his mind 
busy with thoughts of Athens and high deeds, the first of the evildoers who beset the way rushed out at him from the woods. A black bearskin cloaked his bulky body and an iron club was in his hand. He stood squarely in his path, brandishing his weapon and shouting fearful threats. Theseus did not draw back. To slay villains like you have I come this way, he cried and flung himself boldly on the attacker. Not in vain had the prince labored to perfect himself in wrestling and boxing. He soon left the savage dead upon the ground, but the iron club he took away and ever after carried with him. Did not Hercules, his cousin, also bear a club? Many a time on that journey, Theseus was glad of the powerful weapon, for the way to Athens, as his grandfather had warned, was infested with robbers. Three more scoundrels he slew before he reached the river Cephisus, not far from Athens, and had not chance put him on his guard before crossing that river, he might have lost his life. For now there came toward him a villain of another sort, a fellow richly clad and smiling and pleasant of speech. Noble traveller, he said to Theseus, you must come with me and eat and drink of the best my house affords, for it is my custom to show hospitality to all who pass this way. I am in haste, Theseus answered, thanking him courteously. But the other seized hold of Theseus' hands and would not let him go. Theseus did not like to offend one who seemed so hospitable, so against his will he followed the stranger to his house. Now while they sat at table, his host was called from the chamber and the slave who poured the wine whispered to Theseus, Young man, flee this house while you yet can. My master is a monster of evil. He will bid you sleep in his famous iron bed which fits all men. Once you're asleep, he will bind you to it. If you're too long for his bed, he will cut off your legs. If you're too short, he will stretch you to fit. Therefore he is called Procrustus, the stretcher. Theseus said no word, but grasped his club, which he had laid down by him. And before he left that house, he had fitted Procrustus to his own bed. News of the hero's exploits traveled fast. Long before Theseus arrived, Aegis knew that a brave youth from Trojan was on his way to Athens. But the king had no thought that this was his son and anxiously waited his arrival. For Athens was in turmoil and the childless king was afraid. The people might set him on the throne in my place, he thought. Now Aegis' wife was none other than Media, that same Media who had taken such fearful revenge on Jason. In a chariot drawn by dragons, she had escaped through the air to Athens. There she had gained great influence over the old king and had then got him to marry her. She knew who Theseus was. She too feared his coming. But it was for a different reason. With a hero's son by his side, the king will no longer hearken to me as of old, she thought. And she said to Aegeus, let us poison Theseus at the first opportunity, for I have learned 
by my magic arts that he comes to destroy you. So when the welcoming cries, the Athenians brought the hero to the palace. Aegis received him graciously, hiding for the moment his evil intentions. Theseus, for his part, was all eagerness. He could hardly wait to make himself known to his father. But the prince had set his heart on having Aegis recognize him of his own accord. So he gave no reason for his coming and accepted the king's hospitality merely as any hero might do. Morning came. Theseus took his place beside Aegeus at the meal that had been set forth. A goblet of wine stood at the youth's place, and Aegeus watched eagerly to see Theseus drain it, for Media had mixed a deadly poison for him. But Theseus did not even notice the wine. His happy eyes were turned on his father, and he waited, a smile on his parted lips, hoping to be recognized. When Aegeus made no sign, the hero quietly laid his sword on the table. A look of horror spread over Aegis's face and a loud cry escaped him as he beheld the golden hilt. He reached across the table and dashed that fatal goblet to the floor. Then, weeping, he took his son in his arms and hugged him and passed his hands over the stalwart body and felt the knotted muscles and kissed the fair beardless cheeks of his hero's son. Nor could Theseus look enough upon his father. But Media knew well that her hour had come, knew well that her witching rule in Athens was over. So once again she summoned her swift flying dragons, and once more they bore her away, none knew where. Not long after Aegeus had acknowledged Theseus as his son and heir, Athens was thrown into mourning. Heralds had arrived from Crete to demand for the third time the terrible human tribute which every nine years had to be paid to King Minos. Years before, Androgeos, the son of Minos, had gone to Athens to take part in the games. He had shown great prowess, overcoming all the Greeks. Provoked by this, Aegeus had treacherously caused Androgeos to be slain, whereupon King Minos made war on him. The king of Crete raised a great fleet and pressed Aegeus so hard that he was glad to make peace at any price. And the price was terrible, a tribute of seven youths and seven maidens to be sent to Crete and thrown to the Minotaur, the monster half-man, half-bull that lived in the labyrinth. Theseus saw that the Athenians were deeply angry with his father, who had brought this grief upon them. At once, he offered to go to Minos. No, no, my son, Aegis pleaded. The victims will be chosen by lot. Wait and see if you are selected. I have but newly found you. But Theseus was like a rock. I will be one of the fourteen, he said, whether I am chosen or not. So Aegis had to yield. Weeping, and with all Athens following, he went with the victims to the dismal ship. Oh, my father, do not weep so, Theseus told him. All is as the gods will. It may indeed be my fate to slay the Minotaur, and we who shall sail today in sorrow may yet return in joy. If so, you will know the good news from afar, for I promise you, if the Minotaur be slain, the ship that brings us home will not wear these deadly black sails 
but victorious white ones. After this, the vessel took to the sea. The land slipped away, and the youths and maidens turned their faces towards Crete. At Knossos, the capital of Crete, crowds gathered to see the Athenians whom the Minotaur would soon devour. With many a taunt, the captives were paraded in front of the palace. Everyone ran out to see the victims, and with them, Ariadne, King Minos's lovely daughter. She stood with a throng of her maidens and looked on as did the rest. But her gentle eyes fixed themselves on one alone, on princely Theseus, who, head high and eyes proudly flashing, marched looking neither to the right nor to the left. A sudden surge of love swept over the princess, and as the taunts rose all around her, she promised herself, he shall not die. As soon as the night fell, Ariadne stole out of the palace and went secretly to the captives. Fair youth, she whispered to Theseus, I, who for my brother's sake should be your enemy, am not. Therefore, I have brought you this. And she took from the folds of her dress a glistening sword and put it in Theseus's hand. He grasped it joyfully and strapped it beneath his garments. Now let the Minotaur roar as loud as he will. He will roar in vain, Theseus said. Thanks, gracious princess. May I live to serve you? Ariadne then confessed her love, and Theseus, who found it easy enough to give his in return, promised ardently to make her his wife. Indeed, I would have it so, Ariadne said. But there is one thing more, she added. Without it, the sword would be useless, for you would never be able to find your way out of the labyrinth which the Athenian Daedalus built. The Minotaur's house is a maze. The passages turn and turn and lead into one another and end nowhere. None who enters may come forth again. Take, therefore, this ball of thread. Tie one end to the inside of the door and unwind the ball as you go. Then winding it again, you'll be able to retrace your steps. So it was that that the hero met the Minotaur in the gloomy depths of the labyrinth and was not afraid. He came upon the monster sleeping and leaped on him and battled furiously with him. And when the creature lay dead at his feet, Theseus picked up the ball of thread and wound it back to the entrance. What joy there was when Theseus's glad voice resounded through the passages and his companions saw their leader emerge. What embracing, what happy talk of home. With stealthy steps, they made their way to their vessel, where Ariadne stood anxiously waiting for them. Deftly, they hoisted sail, tipped their oars, and left the harbor so noiselessly that the Cretans never awoke to realize their loss. Meantime at Athens, King Aegeus daily mounted the cliffs by the sea and sorrowfully strained his old eyes in the direction of Crete. At last, he saw the ship approaching, and his heart died within him. Black sails drank the wind. In the joy of homecoming, Theseus had forgotten the change. In the joy of homecoming, Theseus had forgotten to change the dismal sails of morning. My son is dead, the unhappy king cried out. Why then do I live? Grief overpowered him, 
and he cast himself headlong into the sea, which ever after has borne his name. Thank you for listening to today's story. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts or comments, you can reach out to me on my Twitter. My handle is blabberingshin or you can email me at iamshinjan at gmail.com. So that is I-A-M-S-H-I-N-J-A-N at gmail.com. Please subscribe to my podcast if you've liked my work and don't forget to share it with your friends and family. I look forward to entertaining you with more mythical stories like this going forward. Adios. Thank you.